Good morning, everybody. I know it's supposed to always start off with a joke, but I'm just not in the mood to do it. You see, about 2 o'clock this morning, Lisa just woke up and violently ripped the blankets off of me. But don't worry, I quickly recovered, and I'm fine now. <laughs> no, no more joking. Uh, I realize there may be some visitors here that uh, maybe failed to pick up an insider let me just introduce myself. My name is Rodney Britt, and I approve this message. <laughs> wow, still teasing. My name isn't Rodney Britt, and I don't know if he approves this message or not. He doesn't either. He's never heard it. We're going to be talking about ambition this morning. What is ambition? When I grew up, people around that part of the world talked about ambition like this. You know, Uncle Johnny, he just never had much ambition. What they meant was he wasn't much interested in improving his situation if it meant he had to work, right? It had to do something with laziness. That's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. The Greek word that's translated ambition in Romans 15 is the word philotomai. It's a compound word. It means to be zealous about something, to strive eagerly, to desire something very strongly. Sometimes in various places in Scripture, it's translated as my aim or my desire, my goal, my aspiration. To say this is my ambition means this is what I want, this is what I'm living for, this is what I'm willing to sacrifice for. This is what I'm willing to die for. That's ambition in Scripture. Jesus had an ambition. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. He described his ambition other ways too, but it was one ambition. He was willing to suffer for it. Everything he did served that ambition to seek and save the lost. Paul had an ambition too. We're going to spend some time this morning talking about it. Scripture reading was Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. I generally use the English Standard Version, and in that version, it says this, I make it my ambition. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, but to those who have never been told. To those who have never heard. The NIV says it has always been my, trans my ambition. It's always been my ambition. That makes it kind of sound like it was Paul's ambition when he was a little boy. And he grew up with that ambition. But we know that that's not, that can't be what it means. Because that's not how Paul's life was before Damascus. Acts 8.3 says... Paul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Years later, Paul's describing that period of his life to King Agrippa. He says it like this. I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So tell me, did Paul have an ambition then? You bet he did. He had an ambition, but it wasn't a divine ambition. It didn't match Jesus' ambition for him. But we know what happened on the Damascus Road. Blinding light, Paul's down on the ground, and then he hears a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Years later, he's talking about this event, and he, he says there was a lot more words said than that, right? He goes on to say, why are you persecuting me? Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the, here it comes, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus told Paul when he's laying on the ground blind. I am sending you to the Gentiles. Now, up until that moment, Paul's ambition had been to destroy Jesus' church, to kill it in its infancy. But at that precise moment, blind and on his knees, Paul received his divine appointment. The specific way that Jesus intended to use him to build his church. To proclaim the gospel among the Gentiles. Now I'm sure the experience of being struck blind and knocked down is a pretty big deal. But receiving this assignment to preach Jesus to the Gentiles was a big deal too. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee and not just any Pharisee. I think it's pretty safe to assume that Paul didn't have a whole lot of really close Gentile friends. My hunch is he'd never been in a Gentile house. I'd go as far as to say he maybe never spoke a single word to a Gentile. In his mind, Gentiles were dirty. But here's Jesus telling him that he is being sent to proclaim salvation to Gentiles so that they may take their place among those who are being sanctified by faith. He was going to be God's instrument to bring salvation to Gentiles so that they could be in fellowship with God and with Paul. Wow. So Paul's got a problem. He's got a dilemma. Either he's going to have to ignore this divine appointment that he received on the Damascus Road and hold on to his ambition to destroy Jesus' church or 
He's going to be obedient to his divine appointment and create a completely new ambition. He's going to have to pick one or the other. Well, we know which one he chose. But brothers and sisters, I have a hunch this was really hard for him. It didn't happen instantaneously. We read about Paul preaching in Damascus just days later after the scabs fall from his eyes, right? Remember that story? He's preaching. Nothing in that account mentions about him preaching to Gentiles. It was the Jewish leaders that wanted to kill him in Damascus. That's why he left. Well, when he left Damascus, where did he go? To Jerusalem. Not exactly a Gentile hotspot. He preaches there until he gets in trouble there with whom? With the Jewish leaders. If he was, if he was preaching just to Gentiles, I don't think the Jewish leaders would have cared at all. So what happened next? Remember, the brothers carted him off to his hometown Tarsus, far away. Paul, let's just, let's just get you out of town for a little while. You rest here in Tarsus. Now, we don't know for sure what he was doing in Tarsus. I, I have a hunch, though, that he was working hard on this dilemma. Scholars say that he was in Tarsus for a while, at least four years, and maybe as long as ten. That's a long time. This was a struggle. This was a struggle. How can this make sense, God? I can't even associate with Gentiles. So at the end of Acts 9... Paul's in Tarsus trying to figure all this out. Meanwhile, what is God doing? He's still moving the story forward. Remember what happens in Acts 10? Peter has his vision in Joppa. Cornelius has his vision in Caesarea. They get together and suddenly the door of salvation is thrown open to the Gentiles. Gentiles start coming into the kingdom, not through Paul, They start coming into the kingdom, and it's not long until there's actually a mixed Jewish and Gentile church. The very first one, well, guess where where it is? Antioch, not Tarsus. And when the church in Jerusalem heard about this church in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to check it out. Remember, what does Barnabas see there? It's a beautiful thing. Well, Barnabas has something else on his mind. Somehow or another, he knows about Paul's divine appointment. And he seems to know that Paul's struggling with it. So what does he do when he sees this beautiful thing happening in Antioch? He goes down to Tarsus. Paul, you've got to see this. You've got to, you've got to come to Antioch with me. So Paul packs his bags, off they go. It looks like from Scripture that by the time they get to Antioch together, Paul has done it. He's changed his ambition. He's actually discarded his previous ambition and and adopted this new one 
to the point where he's not only agreeable with what's happening in Antioch, he becomes a big player in it. It's one of the five main guys there. He becomes Paul the Apostle, the Paul that we remember. This new ambition would define the rest of his life. Well, so far we've been talking about this one man, Paul, and how his personal ambition changed from unholy to holy, from tragically misguided to divinely directed, how he came to earnestly desire the same things that Jesus earnestly desired, but that's one man. So here's a question. Do you think that a church can have an ambition? I believe scripture says yes. I believe churches can have ambitions too. In fact, I believe they all do, whether they know they do or not. Let's look at one this morning. Let's look at the church at Philippi. We've been looking at Philippians together in this class. It's really been, it's really been a great class. In Philippians 1.5, Paul says this. He said, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul talks about his partnership with the Philippian church. The Greek word there, I love to look at Greek words. The Greek word that's translated partnership there is a word that we know, koinonia. Ever heard that word before? Koinonia. It means what? Fellowship. We always talk about koinonia, me, and fellowship, but it's a deep kind of fellowship, right? It's Acts 2.42 level fellowship. Remember Acts 2.42? And they devoted themselves, talking about the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That's koinonia. That's the word koinonia right there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It goes on to describe this koinonia a little bit more. Here's what it says. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's koinonia. That's the kind of partnership that Paul had with the Philippian church. As far as I know, Paul never uses this word to describe his relationship with any other church. In Paul's mind, the things he was doing to act out his ambition, the Philippian church was right there with him doing it too. They were partners. They were koinonia partners. They didn't only accept Paul's ambition for Paul and appreciate it for Paul. They adopted it themselves to the point where they were ready to sacrifice for it too. Second Corinthians chapter eight talks about this Philippian church. It says this, they were generous despite their severe affliction and extreme poverty. They were supporting Paul in spite of severe affliction and extreme poverty. That's sacrifice. Sacrifice. 
They, like Paul, intensely desired to see the gospel preached to Gentiles that they too might come to the light and they were ready to do their part no matter what it costs. Nobody made them be partners with Paul. Why did they do it? Because they wanted to. It was their ambition. And not only that, Paul says they had adopted this ambition from the very birth of their church. Remember he said, He was thanking God for their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It sounds like from the very beginning of the Philippian congregation, the very beginning, they'd had a common ambition to see the gospel preached where Jesus had not been named. That's why Paul says they were the only church sending him aid when he left Philippi to go preach at Thessalonica. The very next place he goes to preach, he's only there a couple of weeks in Thessalonica, but the Philippians sent him aid again and again while he was there. Amazing. Years later, they're still doing it. They sent Epaphroditus on a risky mission to Rome to visit Paul in jail. They weren't only sacrificing because of their ambition, though. They were suffering for it. They were undergoing persecution. Paul writes, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Philippians 1, 29 through 30. They'd heard about Jesus suffering for his ambition, but they hadn't seen it. But they had seen Paul suffer for his, and now they were suffering for their ambition. They understood that godly ambition is likely to involve not only sacrifice, but suffering. Wow. But not all churches are like Philippi, are they? Not just every church is like that. I said before, I suspect every church has an ambition, whether they talk about it or not. Maybe it matches Jesus' ambition for them, but maybe it doesn't. In the Philippian letter, Paul talks about ambitions that don't match Jesus' ambition. He calls them selfish ambitions. And he warns the Philippian church to watch out for selfish ambitions and to watch out for people that harbor them. When I was in junior high and high school, my family were Methodists. We went to a little United Methodist Church down the road. So I kind of keep up with Methodist things, read the news. The Methodist Church, United Methodist Church has been in the news quite a bit lately. Anybody been reading some of that? It's really, it's a fascinating thing. The, um, the denominational stance on Homosexuality has drifted further and further away from clear biblical teaching. And for a lot of conservative Methodists, little churches like mine, the drift finally got so far they they just couldn't deal with it anymore and said they were going to have to leave. So the Methodist church came up with a sort of a pathway for leaving Now, there really wasn't anything they could do to keep people from just walking out, right? The pathway was all about the building. 
Because here's the problem. The denomination owns the building. So your whole congregation can leave the denomination, but you can't take the building with you unless you do these certain things. And there was a pathway, there was a, there was a protocol you could go through and you could have your building, but it involved a fair amount of money. Some congregations had dwindled to the point where it's hard for them to come up with that much money. So they were, they, they were kind of stuck. So 20 to 25% of United Methodist congregations have left the denomination, but there's another number that nobody really knows who would like to leave, but they can't afford to because they can't buy their building. Think about that for a minute. It sounds like a real estate problem, but it's not. That's an ambition problem. An ambition that puts nostalgia towards a building above reverence for God's word, that's a selfish ambition. My parents were married in this building and they had their fear on this building and I was married in this building and my kids went to Sunday school in this building and I'm going to be, I'm going to have my fear on this building too. That's a selfish ambition. Getting the deed to a building won't fix that. The only fix for that is to align your ambition with Christ. But it wouldn't be fair to just pick on Methodists this morning. <laughs> it really wouldn't be right, would it? Because we know, all of us know churches in our fellowship whose ambition is to hold on to traditions handed down by the forefathers. Fiercely hold on to traditions handed down by the forefathers. I came into Churches of Christ about 40 years ago. You remember the big controversy then? or at least where I was, was about kitchens. It was about kitchens in the building. Wow. Now, if you ask somebody in a church like that what they think about somebody bringing the gospel to a place where Christ has never been named, they'd say, that's fine. That's fine if somebody wants to do that. We're fine with that. So, They'd be okay if somebody goes, but they're okay if nobody goes. I mean, it's fine if it happens, but it's fine if it doesn't happen. Either way, it's fine with them. It's certainly not something they're going to sacrifice for. And it's absolutely not something they're going to suffer for because their ambition really isn't about that. Well, what about us? What about us here at Northside? I don't mean each one of us individually, although that's important. What I'm really talking about is all of us together. What ambition does our church have? What ambition are we yearning for? What are we earnestly desiring? What is our goal? What, what ambition is driving us to our knees in prayer? What ambition are we ready to sacrifice for? What ambition are we ready to suffer for? 
This past week, we heard a lot from Rodney and Scott. Beautiful, beautiful news. They've been to Togo. They've been to places where there wasn't a church when they arrived. They preached. People heard. People responded. And there was a church when they left. Wow. (laughs) Wow. But there are still whole people groups, whole ethnic groups in the world today where there are no churches. I don't mean no church buildings. I mean no followers of Jesus. Places where the enemy has unchallenged access to the souls of men. Can you imagine living in such a place? Some of those people groups that don't have churches also don't have any scripture in their language. Living in a place with no church, you're living in a dark place. But a a place with no churches and no scripture, that's a darker place yet. Some of those places with no churches and no scripture lack something else. There's nobody anywhere doing anything about either problem. Now, friends, that is total spiritual darkness. Like Bill was talking about, that's can't see your hand in front of your face dark. Someday, some church, somewhere, will send somebody to shine the light of salvation in that that dark place. We know it will happen because Jesus said it would. Somebody will come. Somebody will plant that first church. Somebody will translate that first word of Scripture. Can we make it our ambition to be such a church? Can we make it our ambition to be a church that does things like that? But we're little. Little churches have done things like this all through the history of Christendom. I don't know how big the church at Philippi was, but I bet it wasn't any bigger than we are. And look what they did. Can we make it our ambition to be such a church? Not just willing to play our role, but filled with a passionate desire to play our role. A church that says, here we are, Lord, send us. Whatever it takes, we're ready. Please send us. Whatever it costs, we're ready. Please send us. However long it takes, we're ready. Please send us. Whatever part you have for us to play, we're ready. Please send us. Not just because we know you want us to, but because we want it to. Because it's our ambition. There's a group of us that have been meeting to pray about our congregational ambition now for some time. If you would like to be in that group, we would love to have you come and talk to me afterwards and I'll 
tell you the secret about how to join us. Now, there may be somebody here this morning who's hearing all this and thinking, you know, my ambition doesn't match Christ's ambition for me very well either. It should, but it doesn't. Well, take heart, friend. Paul was there too, and me. Some of us, it takes a little while. God gets that. He understands. He's given you time. But it could be that he's given you enough time. You are in the midst of people who can really help you change that ambition. I would invite you to come forward this morning when we stand and sing.